Well, take your Bible. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I am thrilled at the opportunity to begin another chapter with you as we continue to preach verse by verse through this amazing book of Hebrews. I was sharing with Susan earlier in our one o'clock prayer time. I looked at my sermon notes earlier again, as I usually do. I just review them over and over, and I thought, these are so pitiful. So may the Lord give much grace to all of us today. There's so much that I learn, and there's so much that I study, and I look at them, and I think there's so much that I left out. But then I read ahead to what we're going to look at next week and the week after, and I think, oh, I'm so excited to get there as well. So I pray and trust that this will be a wonderful chapter, Hebrews chapter 4. As Sam mentioned earlier, we're going to look at the rest that comes from the Lord. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 1, follow with me. Now, this is the word of God. Boys and girls, listen very carefully to this, okay? When when we're reading from the Bible, okay, boys and girls, when the Bible is open, maybe you have your own Bible open, and we're reading from the Bible, the same power that created the world in Genesis 1 is the same power that is going forth right here when we read the Bible. So let's give our full attention and respect to God as we read his word. Hebrews 4 verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Our Father, we come one more time asking that you would show us and teach us what we do not know. Lead us to Christ. Cause us to reflect on the divine glory of this rest that is available and teach us wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been late to something where the door of opportunity that was once opened is now shut? Maybe there was something that you wanted or a place that you were going or something that you desired and you you wanted to enjoy or you wanted to benefit from something and that moment of opportunity was gone. And maybe like an online sale for somebody who's maybe at Amazon or at a different website and and they find that item that they're looking for. Maybe it's on sale for a certain amount of time and they they think, you know, I'll, I'll log on later and then I'll order it then. And when they do that, the door of opportunity 
is gone and the sale's over. Or maybe it's like someone who's at the airport and they're going for the flight and they think they've got a little bit more time than they really have. And they go get a little lunch and they come back to the gate to realize the door's been shut and the plane is already departing the gate. The door of opportunity is gone. In a similar way, Hebrews chapter 4 shows us a door of opportunity. It shows a door of opportunity, and yet yet here's what Hebrews 4 is going to teach us. While the opportunity is there, the door is open. Take action now so you don't miss it. Take action now so you don't miss it. This, this passage today has, has a wonderful tone of urgency to it. And along those lines, by way of introduction, there's so much going on here. And, and I can't wait to meet this author in Hebrew, in heaven. This author of Hebrews is absolutely so skilled, so brilliant, so thoroughly biblical, and so amazingly precise in his interpretation of the Bible. So there's a lot here. Let me give you some introductory thoughts to try to make it understandable for all of us. Number one, our passage today has a feature of urgency. You could almost imagine yourself in this original sermon in the first century when Octor is preaching the sermon, and you could almost imagine him looking eyeball to eyeball at you, saying, you, you, you must take action. There's urgency there. Number two, another word that comes out repeatedly, just this concept, number two is the idea of availability. Availability, the rest And the salvation of God, get this, it is available. It is available. It's not like God has slammed the door shut and he says, I don't want you. You're too bad. You're too sinful. You come from a rough background. No, no, no. The door is open to everyone. Number three, I want you to get this word. It's the word mercy. The word mercy. This passage is dripping with divine mercy. What's that? It is undeserving, sheer kindness from God to you. The passage has mercy. Fourth, I want you to note this feature in our passage today. It is about eternity. It is about eternity. And yet what we're going to see today as we understand rest, that God has, get this, God has a joyous, everlasting, boundless rest where he says, come and enter into my joy. Hint, that's where we're going later. Come and enter into my joyful rest. Another feature of this passage, number five, it's, Temporary. The door's open, but it won't be open forever. Oh, the, the, the door of hope is wide open and available to men and women, but it's temporary because the door will be shut. Now, again, as we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, the author, or we've called him Octor, he is compellingly and persuasively and exegetically making the case, paragraph by paragraph by paragraph, that Jesus is better. 
He is better. Therefore, you must rely on Jesus, trust in Jesus, cling to Jesus, hold fast to Jesus. And he'll do that when when he's interpreting the text of the Old Testament and he'll give an exposition. And then he'll turn and he'll say, therefore, here's what you must do or let us consider. He wants to give you the meaning of the text and then the application of the text all throughout the book. Well, these two chapters, Hebrews 3 and 4, is a warning passage, okay? It's a warning passage. That's why the text says in chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren. Beware. Be careful. See to it that you don't fall away from God. If chapter 3 is the author preaching and saying, now look back to Israel. Do you see how they failed? Do you see how they didn't enter? Do you see how they disobeyed? Do you see how they disbelieved? That's chapter 3, looking back at Israel. But chapter 4 is now the call for you to look inward into your own heart. It's not enough to just look back at Israel and think, man, that was really bad. They didn't enter the rest of the Lord. The author is not content with just that. He wants you to examine your own heart and make sure that you have entered this rest. Now, this paragraph today is masterfully designed. Hang with me for a minute. I'm going to show you how I got my sermon outline. I want you to look with me here and just show you a little bit of the structure of this paragraph. And then I think once you see it, you'll know where I'm going with the sermon outline after that. Do you see in verse one how it begins with the word therefore? Do you see that? That's following chapter three. In light of everything that I've said about Israel, therefore, chapter four, let us fear. You need to take action, the author says. Let us tremble with fear as we look to them. If you see in verse six, chapter four, verse six, there's the word therefore again. Do you see it? The word therefore again. So he's going to draw another conclusion. But sandwiched in the middle of the therefores, Look at verse 2. This is the first occurrence of the word for. Do you see that? Look at verse 3. You have the same thing, the word for. And look at verse 4. Do you see that? The word for. Do you see that there? When when, when the Greek New Testament uses what we have for, it's the idea of an explanation. It's the idea of, let me give you a reason for what I just said. Verse 1 is an exhortation. Therefore, we must take action. That's verse one. Then the author is going to give you three reasons why. Verses two, three, and then four and five. Do you see that there in your Bible? So there's a command in verse one, let us fear. But then he's going to give you reasons. He's going to give you compelling reasons in verses two and three. And then verses four and five. And then a concluding exhortation again in verse Six. So look at verse one. Therefore, let us fear. I like how one English translation renders it. Let us tremble with fear. It's, it's that idea. We ought, to, we ought to tremble with fear. Verse one. If while a promise remains of entering God's rest. Notice the love and the care of the pastor here. Any one of you. 
Any one of you may seem to have come short of it. You can tell that this author loves his church. He loves every person in the church. And he's well aware that not everybody, everybody gathered in the assembly is a true born-again believer. And he wants you to beware and be careful and make sure that while the promise of entering rest is available, don't miss it. Don't miss it. This is needed. It's needed because there are so few in our day and in our culture who take spiritual matters seriously. We might even say in the professing church, there are some who take spiritual matters not as seriously as they ought to be. Eternity and death and hell and judgment day and and the day of reckoning are are oftentimes met with kind of the rolling of the eye or or a gesture or a ridicule or maybe an arrogant apathy or maybe who just somebody just might say, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm good. This is what the author is warning against. Don't be apathetic about your soul and the reality of eternity. Don't be dull. Don't be lifeless. Don't be unresponsive. Don't be unbelieving. Look, sitting in sermons and sitting under the preaching of the word is good, but insufficient to take someone to heaven. It's good. It's essential. It's important. But it's insufficient. The command in verse 1, let us fear. Don't miss entering God's rest. Don't miss entering God's rest. Now, in the outline that I want to give you, look in your, in your Bible, verses 2 and 3 and then 4 and 5 begin with the word for. I want to give you three compelling reasons for you to take action. Now, don't sit here today and think, well, I know I'm a Christian, and this is really not for me. Okay, that's not the right attitude to have. What Octor, and more importantly, what the Spirit of God wants in his word is for all of us to do a heart inventory and say, hold on. I must make sure that I'm in this rest. And I must make sure that I don't fall short of missing the rest of God. Three compelling reasons for you to take diligent action. I mean, this, this is the author. This is the author going for your heart. He, he's going for your affections. He's going for your mind. This isn't just him saying, I want you to know a few theological doctrines. This is him saying, I want you. I want to persuade you. I want to woo you to believe in Christ. Here's the first, the first compelling reason for you to take diligent action. Number one, you must hear the word and unite it with faith. He he gives you a command, let's fear, so that there's a promise of entering the rest. Anybody come short? Well, what's the first reason? You have to know that you must hear the word and unite it with 
faith. Look at verse 2. Let me show you where I get this. Verse 2. For indeed, we have had the good news preached to us, just like they did also, but the word that they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. I mean, you could have all the ingredients to make some really good brownies. But if you don't mix those things together, you're not going to have the right product. You can have, as it were, the hearing of the preaching of the word of God. But if you do not mix it with faith, you're not going to have the right product. You must hear and obey. Israel had plenty of hearing. They heard the word of old. Israel heard the word. They heard the Lord. They had the law. They they heard from Moses what God had given to them. They heard the word. And that's what verse 2 says. We have had good news preached to us just like they did. We've heard the good news of the gospel preached. They heard hope in a coming Messiah. That was preached to them just like we do as well. They had truth preached to them, but what they heard did not profit them. In fact, could we even go so far as to say it did not lead to their salvation. It only increased their condemnation. It increased their condemnation. Why? Because the hearing of the word was not united with faith. It wasn't united with a full reliance on God. Their hearing was insufficient because it was not married with believing. I mean, it's kind of like a Bible major in college. You know, he goes to a Bible school, he goes to a Christian university, and maybe he majors in in Bible, or he majors in youth ministry, or he majors in something like this, and, and he knows about the Bible, and he gets all the Bible classes, and he gets all the theology, and he gets the doctrine, but when he graduates, guess what? He doesn't believe it. He knows it intellectually, but he doesn't believe it affectionately with his heart. It's like the liberal professor at a, at a state university school who's lecturing on the Bible. And they might know a lot of facts about the Bible, but he doesn't love the God of the Bible. He doesn't live out the holiness of the word that comes from a changed heart. Octor says, I, I don't want you to just hear about God. Or maybe in modern vernacular today, I don't want you to just come and hear sermons preached only. Verse 2, notice this. We have had the good news preached to us just like they did also, but the word that they heard did not benefit them. It did not profit them. Why? Because it was not. Now, in my English translation, I have the word united. It wasn't united by faith. Maybe in your English Bible, you have the word mixed with faith. Or maybe you have joined with faith or shared with faith. The Greek word speaks of a very thorough mixing. It's it's like a thorough mixing of something together. The word was even used of joining and mixing.
mixing people together at a wedding in ancient times. There's a, there's a commonality. There's a oneness. There's a, there's a common bond that you have at a place like a wedding. And you're mixed together, as it were. You're joined together. You're sharing the festive occasion. I think of another illustration. Think of ceramics. The mixing together, the combining together of different raw materials with high heat into one. That's actually where we get our English word. Ceramics is from the Greek word right here for mix. Mix. What does the author want you to do? He says, we've heard the word just like they did, but the word that they heard did not benefit them because they did not mix it. They didn't unite it with faith. Church family, let me just give you some New Testament scriptures here on this. Hearing the word is good and important, but insufficient in and of itself. It must be united by faith. If you just turn a few pages to the right, go to James 1. And we we know this because we looked at it a number of months ago. James 1 verse 21 James says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers. He doesn't end there. There's a little phrase. It's a terrifying little phrase. That if somebody is a hearer of the word only, he has deluded or deceived himself. Earlier in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2, the apostle Paul makes the exact same point to the Roman believers. Romans 2 verse 13, it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but it is the doers of the law who will be justified. Paul is not saying that you go to heaven by your good works. Rather, what he's saying to the Jewish people and to the Gentile people is he's showing that all people are together under sin. Why? Well, here's one reason. It's not just those who hear God's word, but it's those who are actually doers of it who show that they are in fact justified. Another passage that we could turn to would be Matthew chapter 7, the wise and the foolish builder. Everyone who hears these words of mine, the Bible says, and does them, he is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fall, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the rock, against the house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. In biblical counseling, I always say to the counselee, what's the rock? And many of them say, it's Jesus. I say, well, I love Jesus and he is the rock elsewhere, but not here. What's the rock? Hearing the word and doing it. And he defines that in verse 24. That's what building on the rock is. It's not enough to just hear the word, but God wants his people to do it. In Luke chapter 8, in verse 21, the Lord Jesus is giving parables about lamps and light. And following him in Luke 8, 21, Jesus answered and he said to those, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and 
do it. So can I just ask a question? Have you done this? Is what we're reading descriptive of you? Are you a hearer of the word and a doer? Dads and moms, boys and girls, men and women, we're all here. We're all hearing the word, which is good. But the word would say in Hebrews 4 verse 2 that Israel of old, they failed to enter because they did not unite what they heard with faith. An illustration of this comes from a a Puritan pastor by the name of Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather was born in 1663 into a pastor's home. In fact, his father was a pastor and his grandfather was a pastor. So this young guy had the preaching every week. He had family worship. He was always in the word of God with his dad, with his mom, with his grandparents. He heard the word regularly. He knew Latin, Greek, and Hebrew and went to Harvard at age 11. Anyway, so he's one of those thinkers. He heard the word. He knew the word. He could read the Bible in the original languages at age 11. But in all of this hearing of the word, Cotton Mather was not converted. He wasn't converted. He wasn't converted until years later when he was a teenager. He, he, then he was, he was ordained into ministry at the age of 22. And then he regularly preached the word of God and he served alongside of his own father in a church in the city of Boston. What's the point? This young man heard the word. He heard the word. He heard the word. That's good. But he was still unconverted. Until by the grace of God, God awakened his soul and what he heard was mixed with faith. And he came to believe on Christ. That's what verse 2 is teaching. Now, look at the context. Hebrews 4 verse 1. What's the big exhortation? Verse 1. Let us fear, church family. Let us fear if while a promise remains of entering God's rest, any one might seem to have come short. What's the first lesson? Why does he say it? You've got to hear the word and unite it with faith. Number two, if you're taking notes, let me give you a second point. This is found in verse 3. What's the second compelling reason for you to take diligent action? Number two, you must enter through faith, listen, alone. And this is what God has said. This is what the Bible says. The simple point is you have to believe to enter this rest. The only appropriate response to the gospel is faith, which I'm going to define here in just a minute. But let me show you. Look at verse 3. Do you see the the word for? He's giving another compelling reason. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter the rest. That's how you know. How do I get into this rest? We who have believed enter the rest. Just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 3 tells you how to enter the rest. How do you go to heaven? How do you enjoy this beautiful rest that God has and that God provides? It's by believing. 
What, what I love about this is that in the Old Testament, as we read this, the ultimate rest was not the promised land. But that was true. I mean, that was a rest. Joshua 21 and 24 makes that clear. But, but entering the land, was a, it was a picture, it was a shadow, it was a pointer to a, to a greater provision of God in the future. It's not just a plot of land that we're looking for, we are looking in and hoping in a person, the Lord Jesus. Verse 3 says, we who believe enter that rest. So what does it mean to believe? I mean, my Roman Catholic neighbor who goes to mass every day could say, I believe. A college kid on a campus who says, yeah, I grew up in church. I believe. Well, what does it mean to believe? Boys and girls, this is very important because you hear dad and mom say all the time, believe on Christ. What does it mean to believe? Well, it means to have full trust. Full reliance, not just belief in facts, but rather a confident reliance in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think it ought to be said, if you're going to have a true saving faith, that means you have a full rejection of self-confidence. And that flies in the face of nearly everything our culture is screaming at us. So if you're taking notes then, verse 3 says, we who believe enter that rest. Let, Let me tell you, as I've studied and thought and tried to put this together, there are three elements that I think are combined in this biblical notion of faith or believing. What is included in saving faith? Number one, it must include a firm conviction. A firm conviction. This is your mind. I know that this is true. I think of Acts chapter 9 when Saul is going up to Damascus and he's going to go and find Christians and he's going to bring them and he's going to persecute them and throw them in jail. and He's, he, he's going to oppress the Christians. He, he hates the Christians. He hates the Lord Jesus. And then Jesus invades his life. A firm persuasion of what is true. He believed in his mind the Lord Jesus at that moment when God converted him. Saving faith has to include a firm conviction in the truth. Number two, a second element in saving faith is a full surrender to the truth. A full surrender. A full surrender. This is your will. I Obey. I obey. This is what Jesus demanded in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anybody wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's not only firmly being convinced of truth in your mind, it is your will saying, I have a full surrender to this one as Lord of my life. But even that, even that, I think, is still incomplete biblically because I think there's a third element of saving faith, and it's this. There has to be a heartfelt clinging to Christ. Not out of sheer duty alone, 
but out of affectionate love for the Savior. This is why Jesus said to the Apostle John, or to to Peter, rather, in John chapter 21, Peter, do, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Remember that three times. Is there this affectionate love for me? Yes, there's the mind persuasion and conviction. There's the will, I surrender to this one, and then there's the heart. I I love, I love this Savior. That's saving faith. And let it be said before we even go on, all of that, all of that, 100% of that package deal, all of it is a gift from God. You can't engineer it. You can't do it. But verse 3, we who believe, enter that rest. So faith is a full reliance on Christ. Okay, I think of it like the Titanic. Think of the Titanic. So many people, when they were on the Titanic, they didn't even think the Titanic was sinking until it was too late. And so why, why, if you're on this big ship, why would you get on a lifeboat if you think that you're just fine. Someone comes across with the lifeboat saying, come, come, get on my lifeboat. But many didn't think they needed that lifeboat. Some tried to get on the lifeboat, but then they found out it was too late. Some of the lifeboats had already left, and yet leaving this unsinkable Titanic and getting on a lifeboat, it just didn't seem wise in the moment. Why would I get off this big ship and put all of my trust, all of my confidence on this little lifeboat? The only safety, the only safety is getting off the sinking ship and getting onto one of the 20 lifeboats for safety. That was the only hope that they had. It's the only hope, a full confidence, a full abandoning of the sinking ship. This ship is going down. I need to enter fully onto one of these lifeboats. That's a picture of faith. Trusting in yourself is sinking. But you have to rely. You have to rely fully on Christ and jump fully into him. Listen to the testimony of scripture about those who believe. Let me give you a testimony of scripture about those who believe. And, and this, is, this is what the testimony of scripture says, that saving faith in Christ is what saves. Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. John 3, verse 18, he who believes in Christ is not judged, nor is he condemned. John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Galatians 3, 22, the promise of faith in Christ Jesus is given to all those who believe. 1 John 3, 22, this is God's command. What does God command? That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So entering this saving rest comes only by faith alone in Christ. Galatians chapter 2 tells us 
In verse 21, this is one of those verses to kind of put away in your evangelism tool belt because we hear this all the time. Verse 21, Paul said, I don't nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. It's either Christ alone or you're left on your own. But you can't mingle them together. And there's a lot of people who might say, I believe in Jesus. But when you really press their heart, they're trusting in themselves together with Jesus. But if our righteousness comes by keeping the law, then Christ died for no reason. He died for no reason. The story is told of a, of a very ungodly man. A worldly sinner had a terrible reputation for all of his sins. And, but he loved music. He loved good music. He was living in London and in the 1700s. And on one occasion, he decided, I'm going to go and I'm going to attend one of the worship services where John Wesley preaches. Not because he liked John Wesley. He could care less about Wesley. He loved the beautiful music in the cathedral before John Wesley preached. So this pagan worldly man said, I'm going to go to the cathedral and I'm going to hear this beautiful music. And then when the preaching goes on, I'm going to put my fingers in my ears the entire sermon and just sit like that until he's all finished. Don't do that, anybody. Boys and girls, don't do that either. But what's so amazing to me is when God wants to get a hold of someone, he does it in the most amazing ways. So here's this man. He's a worldly man. He's known to be a sinner in his day and in his city. And he comes with with his ears open, hearing the beautiful music before the sermon. Then John Wesley gets up to preach. He puts his fingers in his ears. And then God brings a fly buzzing right around the man. And then the fly lands right on his nose. But his fingers are in his ears and he doesn't want to hear the preaching. So for a quick moment, he took away one hand. He tried to swat away that fly. And in that quick moment, here's what he heard. He heard Wesley say, he who has an ears to hear, let him hear. He quickly put his fingers back in his ears. That night, he had no rest in his soul. He was troubled all week long. So the following Lord's Day, he comes back to the same church. Yes, he wants to hear the music, but he wants to hear what the preacher is going to say that Sunday. And the Lord amazingly converted him that following Lord's Day. Enter through faith. It's simple faith. It's simple faith. It's it's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. We read in verse 29. To you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. The Apostle Paul said, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 
What's the point of Hebrews 4? What, 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 is, what is the author doing? Verse 1 is the exhortation. Brethren, therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains, any one may seem to have come short. Don't come short. Don't miss it. Don't let the door of opportunity pass you by. The first compelling reason for you to fear and take action You must hear the word and unite it with faith. The second compelling reason that we saw in verse 3 is that you must enter through faith alone. That's what verse 3 says. We who have believed enter that rest, just like the psalm says. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. More on God's works here in a moment. Let me give you the third compelling reason. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Here's the third compelling reason, and it's in verses 4 and 5. It begins with that little word, for. The compelling motivation is this. You must follow God's example. Why Why should you take diligent action? Why should you make sure that you're entering this rest? Why? Because you need to make sure that you're following God's example. What's that? Rest follows work. You enter God's own rest of his own satisfied achievement. Now, I have not said it yet, but maybe it's about time that I say the key word in the entire section here is the word rest. It occurs five times. It's the key word, it's the main word, it's the repeated word in the entire paragraph. It's a hugely important and relevant subject. Now, when you think of rest, you might think of ceasing from work. That's certainly true. You might think no more self-effort, and that's true. You might think freedom of worry or freedom of disturbances, and that's true. But the idea of rest also carries with it the notion of being settled, being fixed, being secure, being comfortable. And this is the rest that God offers to all people in Christ. In Hebrews 4, if you look at verse 4, What the author does is he says, for, let me explain, let me give you a reason. He has said somewhere, because remember, they didn't have chapter and verses back then, right? They just had a big scroll. So somewhere it was said by God in the Genesis scroll, verse 4, God rested on the seventh day from all of his works, a quotation from Genesis chapter 2, and verse 2, what does that mean? I mean, it's not like God was tired. It's not like God broke a sweat creating things in six 24-hour days. What do you mean he rested? Genesis 2, 1 to 3 says he rested from all the work that he had made. It means this. It means that when God created, for him to rest means that he is satisfied in his sovereign accomplishment. If you hear anything, hear this. It is a divine satisfaction. God is content. 
God is satisfied. God is the sovereign king and he is the one who created and he is happy and satisfied in his accomplishment. Genesis 2.2, God rested from all the work that he had done. Genesis 2.3, God rested from his work. In Exodus 20, verse 11, in six days, God made the heavens and the earth, and then he rested on the seventh day. Interestingly, in Genesis 5, verse 29, when Noah was to be born, the text says, a man is born by the name of Noah, and he will give us rest from our work. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 10, God will take you into the land and he will give you rest from your enemies. In Joshua 21, 44, the Lord gave his people rest on every side. When David is king, 2 Samuel 7 verse 1, God gives David rest on all sides. Does it just mean that they just sit down with their arms folded and they're done sweating? No, it means that they have a they have an achievement, they have a rest, they have a contentment because of what God has accomplished for them. That's why in Psalm 37 verse 7 The psalmist says, rest in the Lord. What does it mean to rest in the Lord? The Hebrew word means have a settled, quiet, confident trust in the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah 50 verse 34 says, the Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name and he will bring rest to the earth. That's after the tribulation. In Genesis 50, or in Jeremiah 50 and 51, he's going to bring rest to the earth. That's the thousand-year kingdom. So what is this rest? What does it mean in our paragraph? Those enter the rest. They will not enter my rest. God rested on the seventh day. Verse 5, again in the passage, they will not enter my rest. What's the rest? It is a happy contentment. In God for what he has accomplished. I think when we put our arms around all of scripture from Genesis literally to Revelation and we try to understand this massive galaxy theological doctrine of rest. It is a happy contentment in what God has done. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we enter that rest. But you know what's so cool? Heaven is spoken of as a place of rest. Revelation 6 talks about that. But aren't you thankful that you don't have to wait till you die to enjoy that rest? I mean, right now, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have Rest. This is what Sam began with today in Matthew chapter 11, and so appropriately so. Come to me, Jesus said. Come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, he he could have used any other word. I mean, why that word? Why rest? Because he says, come to me, believe in me, cast all your works righteousness down, and I will give you a perfect joy of satisfied accomplishment that only God can give to you. 
Rest in me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Do you have this rest? I mean, it's peace with God. It's it's freedom from works righteousness. It's reconciliation with God. It's, It's entering into God's own joy. It's like being happy in God's own achievement at the cross. Come to this rest. A joyous contentment in God's achievement. There's no rest without Christ. There's no rest without faith in Christ. There's no rest without faith alone in Christ. But verse 6. Are you still there, Hebrews 4? Okay, so we saw the exhortation of verse 1, and then we saw all the reasons. Verse 2, verse 3, and then 4 and 5. Now look at 6. Therefore. Okay, therefore, in light of what you just heard. Therefore, verse 6, since it remains for some to enter it. What does that mean? There's some of you who are here, the author is saying. You need to enter this rest. There remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Who, who, who will come short? I mean, who, who are those who will fail to enter? Who are the disobedient in verse 6? Well, there are religious self-proclaimers, false teachers, those who have made decisions, and they're trusting in what they've done for God. There are the self-righteous workers, like the Pharisees, like those of modern-day cults who try to get to God by their own achievements. There is no doubt the worldly procrastinators, those who are sinning, those who are living in the world, those who are loving the world, those who are enemies of God because they're loving the world. They will come short. There are guilt-laden unbelievers like Herod Agrippa. Paul, stop! In such a short time, you're going to make me become a Christian. It's like the rich young ruler who knew that he was guilty, but he leaves unchanged. People who have a guilty conscience, but rather than resting in the Lord, they try to soothe their conscience by their own good works. And what is the author saying in Hebrews? Don't be among that number. Don't be among that number. Come, believe, have faith, enter in, trust, rest your soul. Come into the joy of your master, as Jesus would put it in the Gospels. You know, if you enter this rest, Christian, hear this. You have the boundless joy of God in this God-absorbed satisfaction. 
And the more that you enjoy that God and the joy of God, guess what? The more that you're going to think this world is not my home. As we enter God's rest and we enjoy this rest, we cease from all work and effort in saving our own souls. I can't do it. We are united with Christ, partakers with Christ, and all the benefits that come to us in Christ. If you have entered this rest of God, you diligently strive to know Christ and to obey Christ and to honor him. And and you say, I want to do it now because I'm going to be doing it then in eternity. Let me do it now. As you have entered this rest, you long for the kingdom. Jeremiah 50 tells us that there is a kingdom when God, the Lord of hosts, the Redeemer, will bring rest to the nations on the earth. In Revelation chapter 7, if we have entered this rest, it's almost like we live forward tilted lives on our tiptoes, longing for heaven. Longing for that eternal rest with our triune God forever. That's the first paragraph in chapter 4. There's an urgency today. Enter this rest. If verses 1 to 6 is the urgency, verse 9 or pardon me, the next section in verses 7 all the way to 11 are going to teach us the reality and the certainty of entering the rest. What does it mean that we really have this rest? And what does it mean that there really is a Sabbath rest for the people of God? What does that mean? What's What's the reality of that? That's what we will look at next week together. You know, if there is anyone who knew busyness of life, and if there's anyone who knew busyness of ministry and family and a wife and children and opportunity, it would be the man Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary. He was busy. He was a writer. He was a preacher. He was an evangelist. So many duties, so many demands, such a stressful ministry. He often opened up his home and had people that he had been evangelizing or people that had come to faith or children even staying with them in their home as they founded the China Inland Mission. It has been said by many of those who gave testimony as they were staying in the home of Hudson Taylor that in the middle of the night, often if they had awakened for various reasons, they would hear someone singing a hymn quietly. And the testimony said, and it would usually go, that it was the same hymn time after time after time. It was Hudson Taylor who would often be awake in the middle hours of the evening, and he would be singing his favorite hymn, Jesus, I am resting, resting. Listen to some of the words. Oh, how great is thy loving kindness. It is vaster, broader than the sea. Oh, how marvelous is thy goodness that has been lavished all on me. 
Yes, I rest in thee, my beloved. Know what wealth of grace is thine. Know thy certainty of promise, and I have made it mine. And then the chorus. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Is that true for you and for me today? Can we say, Jesus, I am resting. I am resting in the joy of what thou art. Rest and keep resting your soul in the joy of God's accomplishment and what he has done for people like me and you. Let's pray. We love those words, oh Father, from Matthew chapter 11. Such a, a wide invitation from Jesus. Come unto me, all who are weary. Come. Come. Maybe there's someone here in this place today who needs to hear that again. Come. Come to Jesus. You will find rest for your souls. We know, O Lord, that in this world we have trouble. We know that in trusting in ourselves, there is no peace for the wicked. We know, O Lord, that by our own righteousness, we could never enter heaven. And so what a fitting word of exhortation and application to us in Hebrews 4 that that we would not fall short. Help every single one of us to take inventory of our own hearts to make sure that we are trusting in Christ. To make sure that we are resting in Him and Him alone. Thank you for the availability of the gospel. Thank you for the wideness of the gospel. Thank you for the the openness of the gospel and the opportunity of the gospel that right now the door is open. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope of eternal life. Thank you that we can enter into the joy of your great divine accomplishment. And we can find rest there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.